Thank you very much for plugging into another episode of the Encore Podcast. I'm Chris McCoy, and she is Gab. Hello there, Gabby. Hello, how's it going? Good, it's going good here. Okay, so last time we talked, you were on your way out to sea, and you were really looking forward to seeing the movie Nope. So did you see it? Yep. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) leave the dad jokes to me, okay? (laughs) All right, so you you saw Nope. And uh, well, what did you think? I know you're a fan of uh, of the director. Jordan Peele. Yes, Jordan yeah. Peele. What did you think? So I really enjoyed the movie. It. I walked in not knowing really anything about the plot. I mean, aside from what you see in the trailer, but I feel like you really got nothing from the trailer either. And I think every Jordan Peele movie I've watched, I've gone in not knowing exactly what I was going to be seeing. It's kind of a weird ride because you're sort of guessing as you go along if things are happening the right way or we're like reaching a resolution or if there's another layer to what it is that we're watching. And I would say that this time around was definitely that experience. The only thing I want to clarify is I wouldn't say that this movie is a horror movie. I would say it's probably a thriller or a movie that definitely has a couple of jumps and a couple of stress moments Um, but I wouldn't call it as scary as some of the other things that I've seen, even by Jordan Peele himself. Although the people around me in the theater who heard me yell out at one point because I was so startled might disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, you know, I heard, uh, no, I actually read something that Jordan Peele said that he has a real method to his madness for when he makes his trailers. And I guess the idea is not to give anything away and to keep you guessing as to exactly what's going on. Now, I, I saw the trailer a couple of times in the theater recently, and I have no idea what the movie's about. I assumed that there are aliens involved in this, and you don't have to tell me yes or no if you don't want, but somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, and there are aliens involved, and that's all I took away from it. <laughs> but- yeah, I would say that that was really the only thing I knew about it going into, but I had no idea how those pieces sort of clicked in together and how those things make a horror movie. Cause I think for me, a horror movie is something that's more, doesn't have to be like quote unquote real, like doesn't have to be like a serial killer or anything like that. Um, but I also don't know if I would include like aliens in a horror movie. I feel like that's more of like a sci-fi thriller or something like that. I don't know if you agree with that or if you can, Name me a name me a horror movie that has aliens in it and prove me wrong. Uh, how about Alien and Aliens and Alien Three? How about um, actually maybe more specific and a little closer to this genre? M Night Shyamalan's Signs. Do you remember that? Did you see that movie? A long time ago. Yeah. Um, did Did you think that was a horror movie, or did you think that was like a thriller? Well, what's the distinction between horror movie and thriller? I mean, like a horror thriller, maybe. Okay. But yeah, I thought it was kind of a horror movie. It played well into that genre and especially the way it ended. So I, I guess I don't make quite the same distinction you do, but that's okay. <laughs> so the definition that I'm reading here is that horror is seemingly inevitable, but predictable doom where the climax of the movie is either getting away or stopping the evil but thrillers are all about a tension-filled story that is not very predictable. Okay, there you go. So there is a big difference. Okay. But I think the two kind of mesh really well in Signs 
and maybe in this movie, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. So, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go to the theater to see it because I don't have that much of an interest as at least not as much as you did. Uh, but I will watch it when it comes across my couch. <laughs> I did enjoy it. I think is my final review. I had some questions at the end, but I always kind of feel like I have some questions at the end. Yeah. So, but All I was right. captivated the whole time. And like I said, I did yell out at one point. So they had me enough that they startled the shit out of me. So. <laughs> I'm sure that's all he had in mind. <laughs> so anyway, if that worked that well, that one scene that made you shriek or whatever you did in the theater, <laughs> that's pretty good. That gets major <laughs> points in my book. <laughs> Cause I mean, you know, I've been surprised in the movies before, you know, lots of directors will include things that are purposely like the old hand on the back. You know, that in a horror movie, when there's a real tense scene of somebody walking around in the dark and all of a sudden you, the hand goes on the back, you know, and it's like, it's like one of those things that's supposed to make you jump. But if it makes you shriek so that other people in the theater <laughs> <laughs> respond to your reaction, then that's kind of cool. Anyway, when I see the movie, I'm going to try and pinpoint that moment that made you react that way. And we can talk about that then. And uh, you can let me know if I'm right. Everyone laughed. Just just to be clear, everyone around me laughed because <laughs> I think everyone was stressed out. So the fact that I audibly responded made kind of let the the air out of the tension balloon. I would say. <laughs> so you ruined it for everybody, is what you're saying. <laughs> or you enhanced their experience. Let's leave it at that. Good. All right. So, oh, the interview this week is a gentleman that I've known for a long time, uh, a Boston native who moved to Philadelphia and never looked back, never moved back uh, to New England. And there's a good reason for that, uh, a couple of reasons, actually. So we'll talk to the program director of the Camelot years of WMGK in Philadelphia. That would be Bob Craig, and that's coming up next here on the Encore Podcast. Well, here's another one of those interviews, Gabby, that I've been uh, looking forward to since we set this up a few days ago, because this this guy is a very special man for me and my history in radio. By the way, he is uh, celebrating this year 60 years in broadcasting. That's six zero. Older than Marconi. <laughs> and uh, he is the man who uh, brought me over to the FM dial for the very first time in my career back in 1980, a radio station called WMGK in Philadelphia. At the time, it was known as uh, Magic 103. Bob saved me from a life of playing adult standards across the hall there at WPEN. Adult standards, which I knew nothing about, had no musical frame of reference, and managed to, to last there for about six months before they realized this kid doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> And Mike Bowe, by the way, Bob Craig, likes to say that I got fired at PEN, I walked down the hall, and you hired me at MGK. Now, that's not exactly the way it worked, but it was a very propitious moment there, because your office was one of the first stops, or the first stop I made after getting the bad news that Friday <laughs> afternoon. Well, it was uh, you know, obviously a pleasure to have you, but it was, the timing is everything, as you know. In this business and virtually everything in life, it's it's all timing, mean, being in the right place at the right time. 
Exactly. And uh, boy, there couldn't have been a writer place or a writer time for me back in the day. You know, you uh, were kind of a, a pioneer. Tell me if I've got this right, first of all. Your success or the reason that they looked to you and brought you up to or down to Philadelphia was because of your success taking a, a soft rock station and making it more mainstream. Is that right? Well, the history of that radio station, which is WWYZ in the Hartford, New Haven market, physically the station is in Waterbury, but it's towers between Hartford and Haven, as most of the New Haven and Hartford stations are. And this radio station sat there for a number of years playing what at the time was known as beautiful music with stringy versions, lush elevator music, however you want to term it. And they were like the third beautiful music station in the market. And they were ranked like 16th out of 16 radio stations. When I was out of a, a job in Hartford from WDRC, WPOP, in 1975, I had this idea about a soft rock album-oriented radio station. At the time, there were a lot of people that were having hit records, and not only hit records, but hit albums. There were people like Billy Joel, there was Johnny Mitchells, there was Ronnie Tolson Nash. And whenever you would go to a party or somebody's apartment or look around at their record collections, you'd see these albums there. And you say to yourself, gee, you know, all these people are listening, and they probably bought the album because of a hit record that was on there. These artists at the time had very successful albums that I always felt should have been put to better use on the radio. Because the top 40 stations would play the hits, people would buy the album. If they really wanted something that was a little bit more, let's say, environmental in their home or their office, and obviously they're not going to go to beautiful music stations because these people were the demo of like 25 to 54 figured, well, maybe they could be better served instead of being, you know, slammed over the head with uh, progressive rock, where there are other tracks by these people who were recording at the time, who were giving a variety of music in their albums. So every track didn't sound the same. Uh, there would be uh, moods that would be set, there would be different kinds of textures to the song. So anyhow, I had a feeling that this probably could be something that would fly. So I went to the owner of the station. It was a sole ownership, and the guy really wanted to do something with the station. I said, well, here's my idea. He had no idea what I was talking about, but he had an AM FM station there in Waterbury, and he had an AM station in Bridgeport. And he said, I'll tell you what, would you like to do some work at my station in Bridgeport? kind of like a pop standard, adult standard station, <clears throat> reorganized. And then when the fall book comes out in 75 and in 76, if the ratings are still bad, let's talk. I said, fine. So in the meantime, I was doing weekdays there, and I was shooting up to Boston and doing some honor work at WHDH. So I was really kind of busy, and then the book came out in January of so. You know, it was a disaster again. So I went to him and said, okay, what do you want to do? Well, what do you want to do? And I said, I think it's something that's really going to fly. Nobody else is doing it. At least in this market, there were a couple of other stations in the country. So these formats were starting to form and everybody had to do it. So I explained to him the rudiments of the format. He had no idea what I was talking about. But he had nothing really to lose. 
We brought his son in, who was like the chief engineer of the station, who was roughly maybe a few years younger than I was. I was telling him about, you know, the Moody Blues and yada, yada, because the guy had nothing to lose. You know, the station was nowhere. They had hardly any revenue. So he said, all right. He said, let's get to work on this. So we started formulating ideas, putting together a library, and we went to put the station on the air on the first day of summer in 1976. I had to go out and chop around for all these albums. I mean, it was fly by the seat of your pants radio. We went on with about three or 400 titles. You know, back in that day, in the mid-70s, with radio being as popular as it was, especially with FM, you would know if you put a format on the air within a couple of weeks whether or not you had a hit. I'll tell you, like within a few days, phones were ringing, the people were sending mail, because our signal covered Eastern Long Island, New Haven, through Hartford, Waterbury, Springfield, Massachusetts, Southern Vermont, all the colleges, Smith College, Northampton, Amherst, University of Massachusetts. I mean, it was just perfect. Everything was perfect. So meanwhile, the Fruits Week didn't really have a complete staff yet. And I'm sifting around trying to add more tracks to the station because I couldn't exist on three or 400 tracks because the turnover was too fast. 24-7, we were on the air. So frantically, I still don't, to this day, don't know how it was done. I finally, you know, pulled some people off the street who came in to go to work. Before you know it, EBS FM sales in New York was calling us about three weeks later. And so we've heard about your station. We'd love to come up and talk to you about repping it on an actual basis. So the people who were the ownership of the station, the GM, they were never confronted with anything like this before. They were overwhelmed by CBS. CBS was overwhelmed with what we were doing and how it had taken off. Uh, that was a success story. And about, oh, I don't know, about a year and a half, two years down the line, I got a, an opportunity to go to TM Productions in Dallas. They flew me down, wine and dyed me for a weekend, and they really wanted me to come to work to do not only their radio station in Dallas, but they wanted me to do the syndicated format. And I really did not want to go to Dallas. Really, it's as far south as I want to go. So I came back to my boss and I said, hey, I said, I have this opportunity. They want to have me come down. And, blah, 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 blah. and he said, well, he said, what do they offer you? And I told him, you got to stay. I said, fine. And I called them up and they were somewhat pissed. And I didn't take the job in Dallas. So I stayed. So about a year and a half later, now this is February of 79, I get a call from Julian Breen who was the honcho, the programming manager of Greater Media. And he said, Bob, I'd like to talk to you about coming to Philly at WMGA. All sounded very interesting. They flew me down the next weekend. Wine and dined me, showed me around Philly, which was nothing impressive because Philly at that time, you know, it was Philly. And <laughs> what can I tell you? Good description. No building, no building higher than Willie Penn's hat. <laughs> dilapidated buildings from Broad Street down the front. I said, I don't know. You know, this is, they said, well, what do you think? I said, well, it sounds very interesting. But I said, let me think about it. And Greater Media, which was very, very patient, said, take your time, think about it, and we'll talk in another week or two. So we did. And they said, how about if, how about if you came down for another week and we can talk further? I went down. We talked. 
we came to a meeting of the mind here in April of 79. I just started, by the way, dating Sharon at that time, <laughs> like two months before. Uh, I decided to take a job. I went back to my boss in Hartford, and I told him, and I, I said, I've got to do a major. So he said, I can't persuade you to stay. No, I said, as much as I really don't want to go to Philly because I love New England and I really like Hartford, I said, I got to do it. My gut is telling me. And so I left in April of 79, and it was the best move I ever made. As Chris will tell you, it was Camelot. We, we, we tried a few things when I first got there. The notion was, how about if we updated this format even more, took it more to an adult contemporary station? And we had go-arounds about the formatics of it and the feel and the texture of the music. And I was really adamant about keeping some of the key album tracks that we played. I just didn't want to sound like another adult contemporary radio station. And I fought with Julian a lot about that. And they were deeply involved in doing research and testing music. And I wasn't really a big fan of that, but I figured I would go along for it. That is really how the revised MGK format came to being. And again, it was another one of those cases where and that the station really took off in January of 1980. Everybody was listening to it. You pull up next to cars, they would have it on, they were on in the stores. They were, I mean, it was just one of those things that was uh, just um, meant to be in the right place at the right time. Fortunately, I had a very understanding staff. And fortunately, we were able to get some good people who knew what the hell we were doing and were able to accept the fact that this was a very disciplined format wasn't the uh, highly identifiable personality sound. It was you being a personality within the format. And it's the music that really is sending the message here. Why people are listening. It was understood. There was flexibility in there to do. And there was also, you know, notoriety. And there was some money to be made. It really did very well. And we were number one, most of the time, 2554 for a number of years. It was just great. It was camel. I just remember, talk about everybody listening to it back then. I remember being on the air in the evening. Um, you actually hired me part-time because you weren't sure what you were getting, I guess, with me. So you put me on part-time and you put me on a couple of weekend nights. And I remember working one Saturday night and doing nothing but fielding calls from people who were having house parties, you know, and it was that kind of thing. You're right. I mean, it, at that particular time, Philadelphia, the Delaware Valley really was discovering this radio station, uh, which had been Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, very soft, folky kind of music, very well put together. It just took this incredible leap when you got there and took it in that direction. I remember all of a sudden hearing Rock With You, which was the big Michael Jackson hit that year. Mm -hmm. That came out of my speakers at uh, on, on MGK in the car one day while I was driving around. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> this is pretty cool. This station is growing up. Well, you know, it was really a question of balance. I always felt was something that was needed in that type of format because there was a sameness that was running through a lot of the soft rock music. And now I wanted to get more tempo and texture to it. And that's where the people like the hollow notes and the Michael Jackson's came in, but to balance it again with 
very lyrical, softer, acoustic produced songs at that time to give it more of a flavor of things that we knew that people were listening to at the time. Again, it always got back to balance. And you know, Chris, how I was very adamant about having the music rotated properly and having texture and having the um, variety of music as much as we could get away with it in that format without stretching it, making it questionable in the minds of the listeners. And well, what the hell are they playing that for? And it was also the same, same thing that applied to testing music. Like a lot of times, Julian would say, well, why are you playing? This doesn't test too well. But Julian, got the feel of what MGK is like. And if you program that within two or three heavy tested songs in the format, nobody is going to tune you out. And I just really wanted to have the best variety in a 22-minute period of that radio station where nobody would say, well, you know, I, I they walked away from it, uh, getting a misconception of what it was supposed to be. So the balance became important. Uh, talking to Gabby about you before we came on here, and I told her Bob was a stickler for detail. And, you know, and it's a good mm -hmm. thing you were too, because you had a young staff. Most of us, or I guess a lot of us, I know Mike Bow and I were pretty new to the major market. And I dare to say that neither of us had had a PD that sat us down and went over things, so to speak, with us. And as you mentioned, in the format, we were within the format. We worked around the music. The saying was, the magic is the music, which is something mm -hmm. that really sold the radio station. Oftentimes, it was kind of hard for us young guys to figure out exactly where we fit in to that recipe. And you made it very easy for us to know exactly where we fit in. And you were encouraging at the same time to, to bring out parts of our personality, but always within the framework of the format. Well, you probably remember too, we even had staff meetings where I just wanted to make sure everybody was on board with what we were doing. We would talk things through, come up with ideas. In addition to doing research on the music, I used to bring some of the office people into my office and we would sit down and I would play for them some of the new releases. I would pull maybe seven or eight new uh, singles that were out. And I figured, well, <clears throat> let's go right to the demo that we're dealing with. And these people were pretty much in the demo that worked in the office. So I would have a chance to play for them pretty much the whole song as opposed to a 10 second snippet mm -hmm. and get a real fuller feel of what they felt overall about the particular song. So when you couple that with your ear, research, and people that you work because I really wanted to have everybody to be a part of the radios, whether they were on air or off the air, and get the input. Because, I look, I'm only running the joint. i got to hear from people from the outside and keeping me on track to, you know, make sure I'm doing the right thing here because it was – half fly by the seat of your pants and half research. You know, we had no budget at that radio station. We did so well. It was to the point where Larry Wexler, the general manager, would say, look, you want to fly to Chicago, listen to some radio stations for a while, see what they're doing in Pittsburgh, or, you know, when you go to a radio convention, get a feel of what's going on. We wanted to play whatever. We wanted to do a special, and we felt that it was good for the station. We actually turned down commercials that were not fit for the radio station. 
And sometimes we'd lose the account. Sometimes we would have a chance to redo it ourselves in our own image because we had such a command of the audience because we knew. And I listened to every damn commercial that came in, whether it was done locally or nationally, they would bring it to me. I would listen to it. Say, okay, we're going to do that. And the radio station started to get a little bit itchy later on in the 80s. I think they, they wanted to even expand further and bring in a higher profile morning show. And we had a fellow who was doing the mornings for us, David Langford, who I always liked a lot. I liked David on the air. He was good. He was conversational. He was uh, contemporary. He was very much in tune with everything that was going on. Our staff was basically people of roughly the same age. You know, it was the fact that we had a staff that was like that. But Langford, I never really had a problem. He was very acceptable to things and he was a, a good morning person for exactly what we wanted. I don't know what his next level would have been, but corporate really wanted to take a more high profile. And that's when we tried a few people and didn't really you know, work. And then we had Harvey come in and that was somebody who was local and was higher profile. And that was kind of like a big turnaround for the sound of the station and the philosophy and everything. So I was kind of like feeling my days were numbered. I still liked greater media and I liked the time that we had there. I wound up staying with greater media for about 25 years between AM and FM. So with Chris coming to MGK from PEN, I wound up going to PEN in the early 90s. The people we've spoken to on this podcast, you're not the first person to articulate just how much of a stride that you all hit um, back in the time that you did when the station was really taking off. Being the programming director, you were talking about basically trying to take this newer format and make it work and also having these newer, younger employees and trying to do the monumental task of getting both of these new things like off the ground in a way that like still melded with each other. Did you just feel like you had the tools to make those things happen as a programming director or were you just like, did you just believe in the format so much that you were like, we will find a way to develop this and grow this and turn this into a success? Well, I think one of the major elements here is not only that I get backing from but also the product played right into what we were doing. It was very plenteous what we had to work with. It wasn't like we were groping or trying because the artists were very well known. As I mentioned before, they were having hit records. They were having hit albums. It was an abundant supply everything that I could possibly have wanted. And again, mentioning the staff again, who understood what we were trying to do and seeing success at it, they weren't, you know, feeling, well, this guy is, you know, really feeding us a bag of flies and this is not going, it doesn't seem right, it's not working right, nobody's really listening. They were able to see it coming to work every day the enthusiasm that was within the place and how things kept kept growing and it kept moving in the right direction. Everything fit, you know, like a perfect puzzle. You came to Philly in what, 1979. You've been in Philadelphia now for almost 43 years. Mm-hmm. You left New England, you Boston, you know, that area, New Haven, and you never looked back. I mean, I went to California for four years and Quite honestly, I couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, no, no. 
I would probably feel the same way when I went to California. But, you know, Philly is a really good city. And as you know, the city is really, really shaped up through the 90s and right through today. I mean, there's everything here. There's everything in the city. It looks like a real big city now. You know, you go where opportunity is and you just make the best out of it. Unfortunately, everything fell into place that way. I, I honestly, I cannot envision living any other place. I've not had to move in 43 years. You know, I took an apartment when we got, well, I got here, the shower came down, lived with me uh, about a year later and we bought this house in 81. Really one of the lucky ones. You know, when you're single, when I moved down here, I mean, I had maybe 2,000 record albums moved down, but that was about it. A suitcase and records. That was it. Right now it's 5,000 albums and 3,000 CDs and tons of air checks and tapes. And God, <laughs> I knew when I was five years old, I wanted to be in radio. I mean, I would be in class, like in the 50s. That would be envisioning how I'm going to introduce it. Sinatra and I get to under my skin on WR. And I had no interest in going any further. I just, I was lucky. You know, I was a C's and B's guy in high school. I just about made it out. You know, I was hanging around radio stations, which you could never do today. In the 50s, you could walk into stations, hang out. I'll take you, yeah. take you back to the early, early days of Bob Craig here. Uh, growing up in Boston, it was a very powerful radio station, WBC. It was a 50,000-watt clear-channel radio station. Got all across the country. I would listen to them and all the other stations. I visited every station in Boston. And my father was a uh, newspaper truck driver for the Boston Daily Record. And around 1955, when I was about 11, he said, why don't you come with me and deliver papers? in the stores in through the Boston area. I said, okay. So I did this, and eventually I met a fellow when I was waiting for the newspapers, my father, to get them loaded up in in Boston. It was a fellow named Bill Buchanan. He wrote a column, Boston Daily Record on radio and TV. And I used to hang out while I was waiting for my dad with the elevator operator. And one day in the building, this man walked into the elevator and said, uh, hi, Harry, who's the elevator operator guy. He said, oh, hi, Bill, how you doing? And, uh, I said, in my high little voice, hi, are you Bill Buchanan? He's on WVDA on Saturday nights doing the big band show. He said, yeah. I said, I said, I listened to your program. I'm listening to big bands. So I was like, in 1955. He said, really? I said, yeah. We got to talking a little bit. And he said, why don't you come into my office? for? A, we could talk a little bit more about this. So we developed this friendship. And whenever I had the chance, when I went with my dad, I would go up and visit him and we'd talk radio. And he said, look, why don't you come up, have your dad bring you to the station when I'm on the air Saturday night? I said, great. So I convinced my dad, put the subway in, got off, went to the radio station, which was in the Hotel Bradford in Boston. And I walked in there. Oh, my God. This is it. This is it. I knew instantly. I mean, this was what was in my dreams. So we developed this nice friendship, and he eventually left the radio station. And in the late 50s, he took a job, not only still writing his column, but he was doing a Sunday morning program 
one of the Massachusetts, and he said, why don't you on now with me and spend some records on my Sunday show, breaking the radio that way. I said, great. I went down. This is now developing into the early 60s. I met some people at the station. One was an engineer whose dad was a reverend who did a broadcast of a, a congregation radio broadcast of a religious show on Sunday. So I got to know him somewhat, and he wound up going to Boston as a studio, as a studio engineer. WHDH. And every so often I would see him in Plymouth. And he said, Hey, why don't you um, why don't you apply for this job at WBZ? And this engineer said to me, he said, why don't you apply to WBZ as a summer replacement engineer? Because they hire people to do that. They take some of their summer engineers and put them over on TV. It's easier to train in radio than it is on TV. I said, All right. So I went up there. I apply for this job. Meanwhile, I'm working at this department store in Boston. I'm out of high school. I'm like 19 years old. Meanwhile, I'm going to this radio school to become a radio engineer with electronics. And they're teaching me how to solder, uh, solder uh, wires. I said, what the hell? I don't know how to solder yeah, wires. So I dropped out of that. I w- w- went for the interview, and the assistant chief said to me, he said, well, he said, we just hired three engineers for the summer. But he said, you know, you never can tell. He said, there could be another opening for a few weeks somewhere down the line. I said, okay. So I went back, got my job uh, back at Jordan Marsh, and I'm working there. And about two days later, my boss comes over to me. He said, hey, Bob, there's a phone call for you from from Don Parker, who is uh, from WBZ. So I got on the phone with him. And he said, Bob, he said, you know, we're in about a week ago. And we talked about maybe something opening up. He said, would you still be interested? It might be for a few weeks, two or three weeks. And I said, yeah, I would be interested. So he said, can you meet me here this evening? I said, yeah. Uh, met with him around 6 o'clock. Picked me up, brought me to the station, showed me around. I went back to my box the next day at Jordan Marsh. And I said, I have this offer to go to WBZ as an engineer. I said, but they want me to start on Friday. I said, I hate to give you like short notice. He said, Bob, I know you want to be on radio. Go. <laughs> he said, you'll love it. Please. He said, take the job. I said, oh, thank you. So I went to work. I got in the station that Friday. I walk into the station, showing me around. They bring me down to the engineering booth. Who's sitting there but Max Hortel, the engineer? I said, Max, I don't know if you remember me, but about three or four years ago, I sat with you and you were showing me the ropes here. I said, well, I'm relieving you today as the engineer. So Jesus. so that was my story, how BZ started, and that was my first job in June of 63. Led to my on-air job the following year up in Littleton, New Hampshire. The DJs at BZ kind of helped me along and helped me get rid of, a, or almost get rid of, or try to get rid of my Boston accent which was really very, very thick. I took a job in Littleton, New Hampshire in March of 64 for $45 a week. Left home, went down to where, Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, 65. Went to Norwich, Connecticut in 66. Was on the air there and programmed the station. Went to Hartford, did top 40 at WDRC. That was uh, DRC and then POP for about six months. And then... Eventually, the YZ format in 76. I wouldn't change a minute of it. Man, it's been so much fun. God, I, can't, I can't get away from it. 
uh, WPEN, when PEN closed up and went to an oldies format, similar to what you were doing when I arrived in Philly, when you guys were doing, you know, like 50s gold video, they went back to that. They involved with radio and WRTI was playing jazz. They play jazz classical. And I called them up. And said, you know, I'm looking for a semi-retirement chat here. And they said, well, come on over. We can have you do some fill-ins there ever since, since 2005, since 05. And uh, it's great. I play what I want. I like jazz. I love jazz. I do some shows on the weekend. I go in and record. They leave me alone. Nobody bothers me. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, your, your career has kind of come full circle. In other words, you're it back has. Yeah, it there was just a, a high profile uh, retirement at uh, RTI not too long ago. Right? Yeah, our early evening guy, guy is 88 years old mm-hmm. and probably the longest, you know, the longevity is amazing. But he retired full time and he's doing just Sundays, the Sunday jazz brunch. He held on to doing that. I'm doing my weekend programs and if they need me for fillers like next week. I'll be doing the six to nine evening slot um, every day in addition to doing my weekend shows that I go in and record twice a week. So I've got a full slate next week. So, but you know, I like that because I, the weekend shows keeps me busy. I have to do the prep work here and go in. I bring some stuff in from home. We have stuff at the station and it breaks up the week for me. You know, I go in Tuesday, Thursday mornings generally, take the train in. I'm home around 12.30 in the afternoon, and uh, it's still radio. It's kind of like radio almost the way it used to be because the demo is really quite old. How much creative control do you have over what you do at uh, WRTI? I mean, do you- 100%. 100%. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an anomaly. It's very unusual uh, to do that, but that's public radio, and they know the value of- Hiring people who know the product because the people who listen to specialized formats like that, of which there are very few, classical and jazz, very specialized. And if you say something that people who are very much attuned, it's a very, very loyal audience who listens to both, they pick up on something that is wrong. They'll call you, they'll send you an email, they'll let you know. But they're so loyal to the station, you know, with Philly being the music city that it is. There's always something going on with jazz or classical, always something to promote. And there's always a lot of product to work from. So they they understand what we're about. Do they give the uh, Temple students there uh, in the uh, TV, radio, uh, theater programs, do they give them opportunities to do internships at the station? Yeah, we have internships. They have their own, they have their own inner radio station. I think it's W. HIP is it? I think WHIP. It's a uh, it's closed circuit radio station at Temple University. But we on the FM have not only the FM, but we have translators in Scranton, Dover, Delaware, Wilmington, Atlantic City, uh, uh, Harrisburg. Uh, we're all over. Plus, we have HD radio, HD one and two downloadable app streaming online so we're all over the place what was it like to transition from being in the programming directing job to now being a host because i imagine it it's like two different mindsets that you have to be in yeah it is you know there's always the program director in you if you're on the air 
even to this day, you said things that not, should not be the way that they are. Or, you know, questioning, gee, you know, I, I can't understand why people on the earth are not critiqued, regardless of how well experienced they are. We should have air checks. And, you know, you're never too seasoned to learn new things. And that was one of the things that I think the people at MGK used to respect was the fact that I took time to go over, you know, things, not just saying, do this, do that. You know, here's the reason why we're doing this. You mentioned those air check sessions that you used to do with the staff at MGK. You're right. We did appreciate the fact that you took the time to do that. Not every PD does, uh, you know, especially as you mentioned, PD with quote unquote seasoned talent sometimes often feel that they have nothing to offer this person. Who am I, you know, to tell this person what he or she should be doing and shouldn't be or should be doing on the air? We appreciated it, but that doesn't mean we enjoyed it. No, I'm sure you didn't enjoy it. As a matter of fact, Gabby Crystal has some scars to show you. (laughs) I know before we got on the call with you, he was like, Oh, I was uh, actually about your age when uh, I I worked for Bob and he was, and I don't know that I was ready for like a PD that had attention to detail at that age. And I was just like a lesson learned for my own uh, career. So I always kept the rawhide soaking. (laughs) (laughs) It was, you know, those were, those were the salad days. They really were. I, I look back on those days and I think, geez, if I could go back, I, there was so much I would appreciate and be able to bring to it that Bob was trying to bring out in me specifically, but you can't do that, you know, obviously. Well, all I know is that the staff that we had was very, I, I was always pleased, I would say, with most of the people that I had. I mean, if obviously you weren't let go, you know, you were there. It, it, I, I just wanted to keep staff together as much as I could because it was value. And you know how you can always tell the success of a radio station any form of business, but especially radio stations, if the salespeople didn't leave. And none of the salespeople left when we had this great string of success. I mean, why, why look for trouble? So the staff was together for, gee, what? As I said, after I was let go, I had a conversation with you, and you said, I, I may have something for you. And indeed you did. You found, a, I think, a Saturday night and a Sunday afternoon for me there in the early going. And then at some point that transitioned into a full-time thing. You lost your, your midday guy, Jack Becker. I moved into the, you moved me into that slot after Jack left. Thanks to you. I was there for fit for the next 15 years. <laughs> so was that, it 15 years? Yeah, that was, that was a real home for me. That was, uh, Oh my God. That was just a wonderful experience. I didn't realize it was 15 years. Yeah. Every job I've ever had in radio since then. Your voice was in my head when I was doing a break on <laughs> even to Your this day. Your voice is in my head. And even I right know. now. <laughs> Come on, Chris, wrap it up. Wrap it up. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you helped me uh, self-edit so many times. And, and unfortunately, there were many, many times that I didn't do as much editing as I should have. And I would close the mic and think, I'm sorry, Bob, I, I'll do better next. Do you, re- do you remember that I was actually at the V when it was ED 101? For yes, months? I do remember that. It yes. was horrible. It was horrible experience because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I was governed by Bill Boys and John Hyber. And it was a 
paint by numbers program. And I, I couldn't do that. And finally, we just decided this is not working. So uh, I was out of there in six months. Yeah, I, I never thought that was a good fit for you, you know, knowing what I know about them. And at that time, I just didn't see that as being something that would be a good fit for you personally. I, I just really did not know. At that point, I was really kind of in a flux about, gee, you know, what's going to take place in my career. I did go back to MGK to do a couple of weekend shows doing smooth jazz because we were doing that when I was programming MGK. And that was a very big success. And people loved that. We started doing a smooth jazz show on Sunday morning. And WIOQ had one too. And it was hosted by one of the smooth jazz artists. I forget who it was. It was a syndicated show. Mm -hmm. But we had hours on. And what happened, well, I was doing the Sunday morning thing from 8 until 10. Then we grew it to 8 a.m. until noon. And what we were finding was the station, the show did very well. But the audience wasn't coming back to the magic format after noontime on Sunday. So we were actually losing audience during the rest of the day on Sunday afternoon. It was decided that why don't we put it on Sunday evening instead? Well, I would go in Sunday evening and do it from 8 till noon and come in the next day and do the program. But that show had such great listenership that people used to record it so they could listen to it during the week because there was no smooth jazz station around. They, you know, like that. And I would get calls when I went to RTI. For example, people would, would uh, mention the, 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 uh, the smooth jazz uh, program. Oh, yeah, I remember hearing you on WMGK doing the smooth jazz show. We love that show. Yada, yada. And uh, I kept a log. You'll be amused by this. I kept a log of every program that I did at MGK. Like every program that I record now at RTI, my weekend show, the band, the, uh, the vocal jazz show, I keep I have, no, I have notebooks on this. As a matter of fact, this laptop is resting on all these notebooks, right? <laughs> of all the I've done, you know, like hundreds of these shows. But anyhow, I used to keep a log of all those jazz shows on MGK. And one day when I was at WRTI, I swear to you, this is the truth. A guy sent me an email and said, Bob, I used to listen to your MGK show when you were on in the evenings. And he said, this is a real long shot. He said, you played this song on October 17, 1987, between 9 and 10 o'clock. He said, I've got to know who did it. I went back to my notes because he gave me somewhat the title. And I sent him an email back. <laughs> I don't know. I think they had to give the guy artificial recitation because <laughs> I I had the answer for him. Because I had I had down in the basement, I have all these notebooks that have all these shows. And I have all these notebooks for him. I Chris told you, Gabby, I was a stickler for the tail. Yeah. By the way, that very same guy recently moved to Illinois and bought a a, a lottery ticket, and he has oh, all right. tickets. Yeah, so yeah, so his good fortune continues. Pass along my email address. For you. <laughs> What's your uh, schedule on RTI like again? Mention, uh, I know you're on on the weekends. Yeah, on the weekends, I do a program that's called Voices and Jazz. It's on between three and six p.m. 
and it entails singers of jazz. They could run the gamut from play Sinatra on the program, be if he's backed by Basie, let's say, people singing with Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Joni Mitchell. I've even played some Joni Mitchell on this because she has been in that jazz idiom in her career. So, and newer singers, older singers dating back to the 40s to today. Billie Holiday, obviously. And that goes for three hours between three and six o'clock on the stream at WRTI.org or on the HD radio. And then on the FM between 6 and 8 p.m., as well as the stream is a simulcast now, the FM will broadcast voices singing primarily with big bands. And then from seven until eight, it's big band jazz with obviously as big bands from today, yesterday. That's the two hours there on the FM. So it's a total of five hours on, on the weekend that I'm committed to. That's what I am doing today. On your uh, bio there on the uh, WRTI uh, website, it says that uh, you're delighted to present, Bob is, in his well-informed and engaging way, one of his true loves, Jazz. And boy, <laughs> that is so you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you were always so good on the radio. You think so? Yes. I, I was never really. <laughs> you, you were engaged. Engaging is a good word because you had that quality. You had that presence. And you you can't listen to Gabby. You never heard Bob on the air, I don't think. But you cannot. I wonder why she looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> you could not listen to Bob and not walk away thinking, you know, this guy is good because he speaks. He makes you feel like you're the only person listening. And oftentimes you were the only person listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just something that you love. When you love something, you're fully engaged. And, you know, it's never, I, I just tell people I've never worked a day in my life. You know, it's something that you love. And obviously, Chris, you love it. Would you like to get back on the air doing a show? Where you had some flexibility. That's that would be the key. If I, you know, if I had some flexibility, but no, I, you know what, Bob, I've been retired now for a year, and honestly, I don't miss it. For me, radio is not what it was uh, when I first. Well, this is true. Yeah, this is true. You know, RTI is like one of the last holdouts or something that we kind of radio we grew up with. So that's the only reason why I'm doing it. Otherwise, in Philly, there's really no place for me. Oh. Unless I were to do a podcast or do a stream show, but that really doesn't, you know, interest me that much. You're in a good place, Bob. I, you know, you know your business. I, you you love jazz, and you know it it shows. It comes through that you love what you're doing. You're not just there for well, a paycheck. I, I love jazz, but I'm not a jazz freak. I'm not like some people that I work with are sort of so enamored with jazz. People that I read about, they're you know. <clears throat> So deeply into jazz, yeah, that's one form. I happen to like it. I enjoy it. I grew up around a lot of it. But, you know, I still love pop music, what we were playing on soft rock, even back into the 50s when I started listening to and buying records. Uh, it's just a wide variety of music that I grew up listening to and uh, really appreciate. And, uh, you know, there was a time where I could... Name every artist and every song that was on the radio at that time. That's all I did was listen to radio. It was, you know, what you did. If you were going to be on radio, you better know what the hell your product is. And, uh, 
I don't know. It's just so damn good to see you, Bob Craig. I, I, I can't. <laughs> well, we could do a Z- we could do a daily Zoom if that's going to <laughs> make life better for you. There'll uh, be a charge for the next one <laughs> for self improvement yeah, and betterment. Fifty dollars an hour. Is that sound good? <laughs> they're, they're never going to see the people who listen to this podcast are never going to see what we're looking at right now, and it's a good thing. Because yeah, I, you're right. <laughs> I haven't been able to wipe the smile off my face since we started here. We have to do this again, Bob Craig. This is there's just too many things I wanted to talk to you about to not do it again. So uh, somewhere well, down the line, maybe in the next uh, couple of months, if you're free again, we'll do this one more time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has uh, really been a treat. It's fun. All right. Well, we got to get together in person, or you know, let me know when. We'll talk. We'll do whatever. Sounds good to me. I'm around. All right. Thanks for thinking of me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Folks, good to see and talk with you. Have a good weekend. Stay well. You too. You too. All right. See you. Okay. So that was a lot of fun talking to my old boss, Bob Craig, one of my, one of my favorite old bosses, by the way. And if you haven't been able to gather that from that interview, uh, Gab, I just want to take a, a, a moment here and clean up a little something that I think I that came out wrong there when I told Bob that, you know, of course, you know, he's from Boston, but he moved to Philadelphia and never went back and how I spent four years in California and couldn't wait to get back here, especially for the folks that I worked with in California. They're going to they may hear that and go, oh, OK, well, yeah, we had no idea you felt that way, Chris. No, I I didn't really feel that way. Obviously, this is my home. I was looking forward to get back here, but it wasn't because of you folks. It was because this is where I was born and raised. So you understand that, right? Absolutely. I mean, didn't we learn from all the interviews with the California people that you can only really get a good cheesesteak back here minus that one spot that we still don't know about? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I think that may be the only thing we learned from all the folks in California. That it's a cheesesteak desert. That's what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, did you enjoy uh, meeting Bob? I did. He was great. Um, he had so much personality and so much story to share, uh, which, you know, I always love interviewing a guest that has so much rich history to give us in the stories that they tell and people who want to expand upon those things and remember them so clearly. I think remembering things that vividly especially in a time that times that were good and times that were bad and times of change are, it's a very important skill to have. Um, It's a very nice thing to be able to feel like I was back with you guys when you were first starting up that, that radio station. So. Well, you know, Bob does have stories. And I remember back when he was a young man too, when I first met him uh, in his mid thirties, you know, he had stories then he had great stories then. And so like he started in radio and kind of in the radio business in 1963, as he said. So next year he'll be celebrating 60 years in the business and six decades has got to give you a lot of stories to tell. And he still has more. And maybe we'll hook back up with Bob Craig in the near future or somewhere down the line anyway, and uh, talk some more about some of this stuff. He is a wealth of that kind of thing. So the only other thing I wanted to say about Bob was when he was talking to us, I, was kind of reminded of Larry David in a way, a Larry David though, that had a trace of a Boston accent and, and the attitude of a native Philadelphian. So. 
That's an apt description, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. I think Bob will like that too. I'm sure, I'm sure Bob's a Larry David fan. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so again, thanks for listening, you guys. We appreciate you checking in. Again, if you have any suggestions about what you'd like to hear uh, on the Encore podcast, please, by all means, leave us a note. You can do that on uh, wherever you uh, listen, like on the social media sites. By all means, leave us a comment. We appreciate that very much. So until next week, Gabby, I'll see you. Bye, everybody.